us. Uh, last week, we started a sermon series called Marked, um, and we're still in that sermon series, obviously. Uh, we're, we're looking at passages of Scripture uh, where people have set up altars uh, as a form of worship and testimony to God uh, in the times and places in their lives when God shows up and proves himself. Uh, and today, we're going to look at the, uh, the life of a guy named Jacob uh, in Genesis and the significance of a place called Bethel in his own spiritual development. And uh, we're going to focus in on the worship aspect of the altar. Um, part of the reason that uh, Doug asked me to fill in today was uh, uh, for the purpose that um, my role here is uh, worship pastor uh, and college pastor, but as worship pastor, uh, it's just a neat opportunity for me uh, to be able to take this passage and in this sermon series and instruct you guys a little bit and instruct myself a little bit uh, and look at what God can teach us through this about worship. So let's jump right in. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 35. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, then uh, there's one under the chair in front of you or maybe under your chair uh, that you can grab. And if you don't own a Bible, then take that as our gift to you. We want that to be our gift to you today. So just write your name in it and take it home with you, and it's yours. Uh, so uh, let's, let's just uh, jump right in to Genesis 35, where God says in verse 1 to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Well, let's pause there. We need to pause there for a second because there's more uh, to the story, apparently, than we have in here in in, uh, chapter 35. Uh, This verse sort of gives us a clue uh, that Bethel has a significant link uh, to Jacob's life in the time when he fled from his brother Esau. So there's more to the story than than we can see right here in chapter 35, and we need to backtrack a little bit. And while we're thinking about this backtracking, I just want to say, when you guys are reading your Bible on your own during the week, um, this is a great strategy. Uh, if you're uh, looking to understand a little bit more of the scriptures and, and it gives you a clue that there might be something before that you're not 100% sure about what it means or what the story is, don't be afraid just to back up and read that too. Uh, it can give you a lot more understanding. And, uh, and that's really what this passage does. Uh, so we got to backtrack a little bit so that we can pick up on the whole story. But before we do that, I have to tell you guys something about myself. Um, maybe it's a confession. I'm not sure. Um, but I absolutely love sandwiches. Um, you didn't probably see that coming uh, in a sermon about worship, but uh, I-, I love sandwiches. And Maybe that's a confession. Maybe the confession is really, uh, really probably in the in the fact of how I prepare sandwiches. Uh, because I love sandwiches, um, I'm very intentional about every part of sort of the build process of making a sandwich. Right? Uh, some of you guys are looking at me like I'm crazy. Uh, it's a build process. You know, some people build motorcycles. I build sandwiches. Uh, not for a living, thankfully, I guess. But uh, I could, and I would do a really good job at it. Uh, But here's the deal. When I eat a sandwich, I I want every bite to give me the the maximum, the most possible enjoyment, right? I'm not one of those guys who's like the center is better than the crust or whatever. It's all good when I make a sandwich, all right? So uh, why would I tell you that? Why would I tell you that I love sandwiches and, and how I prepare them? Well, I think that Genesis here, what happens is that God has made a biblical sandwich, And I think that he's been very intentional about every ingredient so that we can get the maximum benefit from the story, 
right? So if we read uh, Genesis 35 uh, without backtracking, then we miss some. It's almost like if we read Genesis 35 without going all the way back to chapter 28, where Jacob has his first experience at Bethel, then it's like you take a white bread, piece of white bread out of the cabinet, uh, and you're like stuffing your face with white bread, expecting it to taste like turkey, cheese, and bacon when that stuff hasn't even come out of the refrigerator yet, right? So you got to make the whole sandwich so you can get the maximum benefit from it. So we're going to look back to chapter 28, and you can flip there if you want. Um, we don't have time to uh, give you the whole uh, rundown of what happens between chapter 28 and chapter 35, but I'm going to do my best to, uh, uh, to uh, you know, uh, give you a synopsis or paraphrase it. So in chapter 28, Jacob's got this similar encounter with God at this place called Bethel. Um, and in chapter 28, he, he's just been sent by his parents to his uncle's house um, to take a wife because his parents did not want him to have a Canaanite wife, and they lived in the land of Canaan. So he's got to go outside of his land to find a wife. Well, Jacob's brother Esau already had two Canaanite wives. Uh, you can imagine how that made Esau feel, uh, sort of the lesser brother. They didn't really care about his wives, really. So, you know, Jacob uh, knows that Esau really kind of hates his guts, and, and really Esau already hated his guts because I don't know how much you know about the story of Jacob, but when they were younger, uh, Jacob, with his mom's help, tricked Esau, um, or Isaac, his father Isaac, into giving Jacob Esau's birthright uh, and inheritance. So Esau had all this stuff coming to him because he was the firstborn of the twin, uh, twins, but Jacob sort of uh, stole that away from him. So you can imagine all the things that's going through Jacob's mind about how much Esau probably hates his guts at this point. Um, so maybe that makes you feel a little bit better about your family. Um, <laughs> at least you're not marrying your cousin, right? Uh, did you catch that? He has to go to his uncle's house to find a wife. <clears throat> So Jacob sets out on this journey, knowing that his brother hates his guts, and, uh, and, and he stops to sleep and has an interesting dream. And maybe you've heard of Jacob's ladder, uh, but this dream is where uh, there's a ladder that extends from the earth all the way to heaven, and up and down this ladder are going angels, up and down, over and over again. And, and next to the ladder is standing God, the Lord, and the Lord is speaking to Jacob. And what he says to Jacob is really interesting. Basically, what he says to Jacob is the same thing that he's told his father Isaac and Isaac's father Abraham. You guys remember Abraham? Abraham, father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. Yeah, uh, he's telling him the same thing, giving him the same promises in the dream that he gave to Isaac and Abraham, the promises of land, uh, the promises of offspring, and the promises of God's presence. Uh, so Jacob has this experience at Bethel where he sort of encounters God in the dream and he's awestruck. He's awestruck enough to where he names the place Bethel because it wasn't named Bethel before, before Jacob got there. He named it Bethel. Why would he do that? Well, the name Bethel means house of God. So obviously this had uh, enough impact on Jacob's life to where he would give it the name house of God. Uh, however, it, he didn't seem to be awestruck enough to fully commit himself to the Lord. And here's why I say that. If you look closely at, in chapter 28, uh, his response to the dream was conditional. He says that if God would do these things, then he will be my God. So it's apparent to us that Jacob has not, at this point in his life, at the first encounter at Bethel, fully committed himself to God. Now, he knew something of God because his father was Isaac and his, and his grandfather was Abraham. Uh, and it was probably important enough in his family that he stopped uh, and, and said, man, this is a big marker in my life. 
I've had an encounter with the Lord God, who is the God of my father and my grandfather. I'm going to set up this rock that I slept on last night as a pillar. I'm going to mark this occasion because, you know, at least God is there. At least he exists, right? He may not be fully committed to him, but it's a, signif- it's a signifier of God's presence there at that place, this pillar. Uh, so Jacob's experiences at Bethel here in chapter 28 and then there in chapter 35 that we're going to look at uh, give us the bread for our biblical sandwich. And everything that happens in between is just as important. Remember, because if you just eat the bread and expect to taste the whole sandwich, you're not going to. So we got to get a little taste of everything so that we can get the maximum benefit from the story. And we don't really have time, like I said, to take a close look at everything that happens to Jacob uh, in these 20 plus years that transpire between chapter 28 and 35. Uh, But uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase some of it for you. And you can maybe follow along in your pages and just look for some of the keywords and subtitles and that kind of thing, and, you may, uh, and that may help you follow along. But Jacob, in chapter 29, exhausted from travel, uh, stumbles upon this woman who is drawing water from a well. Uh, this woman, uh, whose name was Rachel, uh, was the love of Jacob's life, right? It was love at first sight. It was also his cousin, uh, but that's beside the point, right? Uh, hopefully you guys are catching on to this thing that, that, that there's a little uh, uh, family marriage going on here, uh, but that's okay. You know, we live in a completely different culture. So Jacob it falls in love with this woman, Rachel, and, and they, she takes him to her father, Laban, uh, and Laban says, okay, I'll make you a deal. Uh, if you work for me for seven years, then I'll give you Rachel, all right? And so Jacob is like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll work for you for seven years. Why not? Uh, so he works for seven years, basically slave labor, uh, so that he can have Rachel as a wife. Well, what happens is that after the seven years of this hard labor, Laban tricks Jacob into marrying Rachel's older sister, Leah, because it wasn't custom to give away the younger daughter before the older daughter, right? So he gives Jacob Leah. Well, when Jacob comes to this realization, I mean, maybe it was dark that night, I'm not sure, but when he comes to this realization, he's furious because he expected Rachel. He'd worked for seven years, but his love for Rachel was great enough that when Jacob said, work for me another seven years and I'll give you Rachel, he did, right? He, he didn't really ask a question. So he worked 14 years, 14 years out of his life uh, for, for Rachel, and uh, eventually he got her. And it wasn't long before he and Leah and Rachel uh, began to have children. And before you knew it, they had 12 kids. 12. I mean, I've seen some big families. My grandmother had seven siblings. 12 is a lot of kids. Um, And that comes into significance later. Uh, But 12 kids is a pretty big deal. So Jacob begins to uh, have a desire to take his own family back to his homeland to sort of start a new life with them uh, and get out from under this slave labor kind of situation. And so he begins to build his own wealth uh, so that they can go back home. And, uh, and what happens is before he leaves, Jacob's brothers-in-law, or also his cousins, Laban's sons, accuse him of stealing from Laban. Well, it's wildly untrue, but who's Laban going to believe? Is he going to believe Jacob, who came from miles and miles and miles away without a relationship with him and takes both of his daughters, or is he going to believe his own sons? Well, of course, he's going to believe his own sons. And so what this led to was Jacob had to take his family and flee from Laban, okay? So uh, Laban, who, again, was on his son's side, chased him down because he was going to get what was his, right? So he chases down Jacob uh, and, and finally catches up, and uh, they have a little discussion, business meeting, you might say, where if you read it, it looks like 
at the very minimum, they at least agreed not to kill each other. Uh, so they said, we'll set up this rock between us, and you don't cross it to harm me, and I won't cross it to harm you. Okay, and that's it. And, and that was the extent of their reconciliation. Uh, but Laban let Jacob go his separate way with his family. And so that was a good deal. So uh, some of you guys are probably thinking, man, his in-laws are worse than mine. Uh, but I've got good in-laws. I don't know about you. Uh, just kidding. I do. I do, Jill. I do. <clears throat> but since Jacob was in a spirit of reconciliation, somewhat, he decides he's going to send for Esau. Uh, to make peace with his brother. And so he sends a, a servant out to find Esau, and what he finds is that Esau is already coming after him. So pretty scary, huh? Well, you got to know something about Esau and about Jacob. Jacob was the kind of guy when he was growing up that, and I like to cook, you know, don't get me wrong, but, but Jacob was the guy who was always in the kitchen helping his mom make the stew and that kind of thing. Esau was the guy who was always out in the woods, like wearing bear skins and killing animals with his bare hands. Would you be afraid of that? I think I would. If he was coming after me, you know, I'd be like the bush shaked over here. And I'd be like, Is that, you know, who knows, right? He's probably got all these tactics where he hides and, you know, creeps up and then he's going to jump out and kill him with a spear or something. So I'd be freaking out uh, if I were uh, Jacob. So Esau's coming after him and, and Jacob was so afraid that he took everything that he owned and he divided it into two. Uh, why would he do that? Because if Esau attacked him, at least half of what he owned would survive. That's fear. That's fear right there. So he pleaded with God, God, don't let Esau kill me. Please, don't let Esau kill me. And, and even to the extent that he sent gifts ahead when he knew that Esau was coming and said, you know, send him rams and goats and that kind of thing just to appease Esau as much as possible that maybe he would spare his life. Well, later that night on a separate occasion uh, or separate event here, uh, not related to Esau, uh, Jacob was alone and a man that Jacob identified as God himself uh, wrestled with Jacob all night. Uh, and, and they had this epic wrestling match where uh, it was just back and forth and back and forth. And what the scripture tells us there in chapter 32 is that Jacob actually puts up the more valiant fight. He fights harder and maybe it's even closer to winning. But all that God had to do was touch his hip socket and completely knock it out of joint. That's pretty crazy. That's all-powerful God right there. You know what that tells me? Personally, this is my personal belief about what this passage means. Uh, I think that this was the moment in Jacob's life when he realized, no matter how hard I fight, God is always going to be the one in control. Okay? So, so you remember back in 28, we were talking about the sandwich, chapter 28, when Jacob is not 100% committed to God? I think this is a moment where in his life he becomes more committed to God, where he realizes, no matter how hard I fight, all night long wrestling, God is still going to be all-powerful, and I'm not. So I think that was an important event in his life. And, and uh, when Jacob got up the next day, remember back to Esau, who's coming after him, he sees Esau coming with 400 men. So not only is Esau intense, but he's got 400 guys with him. So I'd be pretty scared. I don't know about you. Uh, Jacob was definitely scared, but the gifts must have worked. Because Esau comes, and instead of coming at him with a spear or a sword or something like that, he comes up to Jacob and gives him a huge bear hug. And they reconcile. Maybe it was the prayer. I'm really not sure. Maybe it was the gifts. I don't know. But they reconcile their relationship. They go their separate ways. Um, so then Jacob travels to a place called Shechem. 
And at Shechem, an interesting thing happened. Jacob constructed an altar to the Lord there. Remember, we're talking about altars. We're talking about spiritual markers in our lives. He constructed an altar there at Shechem. Well, what's interesting about that is that Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, had also constructed an altar at Shechem. So what this tells me is that Jacob is at this point probably 100% committed to the Lord. He realizes that God is the one who spared him uh, that night in the wrestling match. He realizes that God is the one who spared him from Esau. He realizes that God is the one who spared him from Laban. And he's 100% committed to God. He constructs this altar uh, out of worship for God and testimony to what had already happened in our sandwich uh, and, and goes from there. And they camp there at Shechem. So it sounds like things were kind of turning around for Jacob, that sort of the ups and downs might be evening out, right? Uh, but what happens in Shechem uh, is pretty disturbing. Uh, Jacob had 12 children. One of them was a daughter. Her name was Dinah. And Jacob's daughter Dinah in Shechem uh, was defiled by the prince of Shechem. Okay? Um, you can use your imagination or maybe read that later to see maybe further meaning into what that means. But uh, she was defiled. And this infuriated Jacob's sons and it upset Jacob. But Jacob's sons were so mad that they faked a treaty with the men of Shechem. And you guys can read more about that treaty, too, in, in, in Genesis there. That's pretty interesting stuff. Uh, but uh, uh, they faked a treaty, and then at the opportune time, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, go in and kill every single man in the city. Now, that's some pretty serious rage. But they did it, overreaction or not. Uh, and so what that meant to Jacob was just another level of fear, another level of anxiety. And, that's, and here's why. Because there were cities that surrounded Shechem that heard the news of Jacob's brothers going in and slaughtering everybody. And what happened was Jacob understood that these cities are going to hear about what you guys did, and they're going like, to be afraid for their own lives. And so what they're going to do is they're going to rise up together, and they're just going to attack us and kill us. And we're going to be gone. Everything we own, everything we've been through, it's going to be for nothing, right? That's what Jacob was afraid of. Uh, thankfully, God spared them. But, you know, can you imagine what he was going through, the ups and downs? Well, man, I think chances are that you can. I think chances are you can imagine the kind of ups and downs that Jacob went through because we all live in the same sinful world that Jacob lived in. We all do. We all face the same junk that life throws at us. Man, what happened in Jacob's life is that God used everything that happened to grow his commitment to the Lord. You see, Jacob started with a pillar. Remember, in chapter 28, he sets up this pillar in the place where God comes to him in a dream, recognizing in his own heart that at the very least, God was in existence, that God was real, right? But still questioning whether God is going to be true to his promise. So uh, then life started happening to Jacob, and these, these events started transpiring, but God remained faithful. And the pillar became the foundation on which God would use Jacob's circumstances to make his life become uh, committed to the point that his life was a, a life of worship, an altar of worship before the Lord. At the moment when God says to him in chapter 35, verse 1, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. The point is that everything that happened in Jacob was on purpose, and it's going to influence what we see in chapter 35 and how we interpret that. So do you remember what we said about, earlier about altars? Do you remember that an altar is, uh, part of the purpose was as an act of worship? Well, what we need to understand about the altar is that this act of worship wasn't just a singular event. It wasn't isolated. 
But instead, it was something that marked a life of worship. You see, the altar was just a marker along the way. It wasn't the event. The life was the event. And as you read the Old Testament, and you start to look for things like altars and memorials, man, I bet you'd be really surprised about how many you come across. Um, I was just reading here in, in Genesis, uh, a few chapters in Genesis around 28 and 35. Man, I think I counted seven to eight at least in those few chapters, altars and memorials. Uh, and you continue reading through the, through the Old Testament, and you figure out how important the spiritual markers became to Jacob and to the Israelites. And what that says to me is that for Jacob and later for the Israelites, that worship was more than just an event. Worship was more than uh, just an isolated circumstance, like a Sunday morning, say. It was an integral part of their life. It was an everyday kind of thing. Well, as Jacob became more and more committed to this life of worship toward God, he, he had to give his household, the people who were with him, some overdue instruction because it was clear, if you read the sandwich, chapter 28 to 35, that they were not as committed as he was by that point to following the Lord. So he had to give this, them some overdue instruction on what it looked like to live a life of worship. And I think that's where we're going to jump in here in chapter 35 is to pick up on what was Jacob telling them? How, what was the message? What can we see here? How can God teach us through this passage uh, on how to live a life of worship? Because I, I think there's some crucial lessons on how and why we should make worship an integral part of our life. So let's jump in. Let's, uh, we've got the sandwich. Everything's under control. Uh, let's jump into chapter 35 and, and check out some of these lessons. Uh, the first lesson is this, that a, a life of worship is costly. A life of worship is costly. Uh, let's read verses 2 through 4 in Genesis chapter 35. It says this, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. All right. Well, what do I mean when I say that worship is costly? I mean that there's things in all of our lives that cheapen our worship. And Check out this diagram. It's going to come up, and there's going to be some pieces coming up on this uh, screen as we go. And so maybe use that as a point of reference to sort of get a visual for what I'm talking about. But a life of worship is all about what's going on inside of you. And that affects how you live. And so that's why I use the, the image of the heart is because it's about what's inside of you. It's not necessarily about the outside. For some of us, we only reserve a small piece of our heart for worship because our, our view of worship is limited to what happens here on a Sunday morning. But guess what? Uh, God is bigger than church. Not many people say that very often because church is sort of where God is, right? But God is bigger than church. So worship has to be bigger than church. We've got to understand that, that worship is, is so much bigger. And, and we, you know, it's not just about when you show up here on a Sunday or a, a Sunday night or a Wednesday or whatever's going on, but it's about, it's about every day when you wake up. It's about when you go to school. It's about when you take your kids to daycare. It's about when you stop for gas and when you go to the grocery store. And it's about when things are going great. And it's about when things are going terrible. Worship affects every part of our life. And God wants all of it. So, uh, you know, some of us have the small piece uh, of our heart that's reserved for worship. Uh, and it's only a small piece because, not because of our perception on what worship is, but it's about other things that keep our worship boxed in. All right? Check this out. Jacob says to his household in verse 2, 
Purify yourselves and change your garments. In Jacob's time, they understood that what you did outwardly reflected what was on the inside. And so it was a common practice in their worship to, uh, when it was time to uh, you know, build an altar or make an offering or things like that, uh, to change their clothes because it was an outward sign of inward change. Is that right? You guys following that? So that was important to them. Uh, and so he says, purify yourselves and change your garments, all because they knew what was happening on the inside was the most important thing. It's about their heart, right? And, and I think oftentimes we keep part of our heart reserved for these inward vices, these things that, uh, that fill up our hearts and our lives other than worship, that distract us from God. And maybe for you it's impure thoughts, uh, this is going to be the first segment on our heart, uh, impure thoughts, where your heart is so full of envy uh, and anger and jealousy and lust that it cheapens your worship, forcing it to play a smaller role in your life. You guys follow that? So, you know, uh, when worship plays a smaller role in your life, you know, it's, it's because, maybe not because of what you believe about worship or how you define worship, Maybe it's because about what's going on inside of you. And so what Jacob says is to, uh, to, to get rid of these foreign gods, to purify yourselves and change your garments. And what he meant was those things in your life, like these impure thoughts, like the anger, the, the lust, the greed, all that kind of stuff, push it out so that you can make room for worship. Well, some of us reserve part of our heart uh, and we commit it to these perpetuating lies that we've told ourselves and others. Um, that's just part of who we are, and that's the next segment on our screen, is these perpetuating lies. Now, what I mean is, is that you may have started with a little white lie to uh, impress your boss or to uh, uh, appease your spouse, uh, or it may be the, the thing that you told yourself to justify the action you did that you didn't want anybody else to know about. And it's these things in our heart that if we let them go, that they become perpetual and they grow and they take up more space in our heart because what we're really afraid of is that if we stop them, that they'll ruin those relationships. Or that if we stop them, that it'll expose something about me that I don't want anybody else to know. And so what happens is these lies take up more space in our heart that God deserves for worship. So uh, that, that's the second thing, is that uh, you can fill your heart with these lies. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus said to the woman at the well, this is a story in John chapter 4 um, that Doug has referred to many times. So I think you guys are pretty familiar with it. Uh, Jesus said to this woman, a woman whose heart was full of secrets, uh, he told her that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Interesting. Interesting that the truth would be uh, an aspect of worship, of true worshipers. Interesting. So, if we want to make room in our hearts for worship, it's going to cost us. But don't forget that it's not only about what's on the inside, because what's inside reflects the outside. Uh, Jacob told his household to put away the foreign gods. And if you pay close attention to the sandwich, chapters 28 to 35, you'll see that idol worship was a pretty big deal for Jacob's household. And how do I know that? Well, Remember the story when, uh, uh, in chapter, I think it's 31, where uh, Jacob is accused of theft by his uh, uh, brother-in-law's, Jacob's sons? When Jacob flees from Laban, this is a, just a small part of this, but I think it's really interesting. His wife, Rachel, takes that opportunity to sneak back around to the house and just go ahead and steal all of Laban's household idols. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. 
that Rachel sneaks back around, takes all the household idols from her husband, I mean, sorry, from her father, so that she can travel with him, with her husband. Interesting, interesting. Well, why were these gods important? Why were these idols important? Here's how I would define an idol. It's a physical representation of a false sense of hope. A physical representation of a false sense of hope. So essentially, you know, you've got these different idols, and in their day it might have been a crop idol, where you pay homage to your crop idol, and, uh, and in turn, the idol would provide you with a good crop. Or it could be a travel idol, where uh, you pay homage to the travel idol, and in turn, you're going to get where you're going safely, right? Well, that sounds ridiculous. Well, maybe it doesn't, because I think we do this stuff every day. I think we all set up things in our lives that create a false sense of hope in our heart that distracts us from worship. Maybe for you, it's a nice car, a nice house. It gives you that sense of success. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's you think about your self-worth in terms of the salary you make. Maybe you think about your self-worth in terms of the friends you have. Uh, you know, maybe it's uh, the stuff that you have at least gives you the sense that you're better off than that other guy. It's all these things that we set up in our lives that give us this false sense of hope when only God is the only hope. We start to fool ourselves into believing that we can take these things on, on our own, and we can bring these material things into our lives, and they'll, they'll somehow solve our problems. But they won't. God is our only hope. God is our only hope. Others of us reserve part of our heart for destructive habits. Now, don't fool yourself into thinking that this isn't you. Um, it's me too. So all of us are in the same boat here. We've all got these things that give us a false sense of hope that are habits of ours. I mean, ask yourself these questions. Uh, what do you turn to when you're stressed out? What do you turn to when you lose your job? What is it that you turn to when the check bounces? What is it that you turn to when your relationships are rocky? What is that thing for you? And we've got to ask ourselves what that is in our hearts because what that thing, whatever it is for you, does is it, it gives us this false sense of hope that we can take care of things on our own when the truth is, like I said earlier, that God is our only hope. And they take up space in our heart which cheapens our worship. I mean, you see now on the screen, you've got all these things around, and the worship is really just boxed in. It's only a very small part of our hearts. But a life of worship means replacing these vices with a pervasive trust in God, uh, that he'll take care of us, right? Uh, so hopefully what we can do here is pinpoint some of the impurities, some of the foreign gods in our heart that cheapen our worship. And this is not an exhaustive list, these four things. This is only things that really God brought to my heart that, uh, that I believe he wanted to speak to you. So whichever one of those things speaks to you, um, and I hope that God uses that to really kind of penetrate your heart. Uh, but, you know, uh, getting rid of these things is not fun. That's why worship is costly. Getting rid of this stuff, moving it out of our hearts is not easy. Man, a lot of times it hurts, right? But it's worth it because God desires and deserves our entire heart. God desires and deserves our entire heart. You know, life is always going to throw junk at us. It will. It did with Jacob. Remember when Jacob was kind of, you thought it was a turning point there where things were going a little bit better for him? And then what happens to his daughter? Tragedy, right? 
Life is always going to throw junk at us. But, you know, just as it did with Jacob, uh, you know, we've got to decide how we respond to it. Because that's the real question, is when this stuff comes, when this stuff bubbles up in your heart and it starts pushing worship into a smaller box, what do you do with it? How do you respond? Do you hold on to these things? Do you keep them at arm's reach where, you know, in case a tragedy comes, you can reach for that vice and grab it and, uh, and let that be your false sense of hope? Or do you do like Jacob did and say, hey, give me all your idols. Purify yourselves. I'm going to take this stuff and I'm going to bury it under a tree and we're going to walk away from it. What do you do? Do you hold on to it or do you bury it under a tree and walk away from it following God with all of your heart? Because that's what he deserves and that's what he desires, your entire heart. That's why a life of worship is costly. So, lesson number two. We're moving forward here. Lesson number two. A life of worship means proclaiming God's faithfulness. A life of worship is proclaiming God's faithfulness. Let's take a closer look at verse three. We just read two through four, but I want to hone in here on verse three and what it says in chapter 35. It says, Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Well, you guys know that Jacob was the head of his household. You know what that means in his day? That means if Jacob says go, they went. That means if Jacob says build an altar, they're going to build an altar. That means if Jacob says, you guys need to stay here while I go take care of some stuff that's just between me and God, doesn't really have anything to do with you, they wouldn't even bat an eye. They'd just sit and wait. Jacob was the head, right? But that's not what Jacob did. Jacob saw the opportunity. He saw a sphere of influence, and he wanted to lead them to worship by proclaiming to them how God had been faithful in his life. Right? He said, this God answers me in the day of my distress. He's been with me wherever I've gone. He didn't have to tell them that. They would have done whatever he said. He didn't have to explain God to them, but he chose to. He chose to proclaim God's faithfulness. There's a couple of grammatical clues here that give us some insight about God and worship. And I want to I just take those and, and look at those for a second. The first is the word answers. Uh, this is a present active verb. You guys follow me there? Uh, some of you are like, dude, I've been to high school. Please don't take me back there. Uh, but this is, you got to stick with me here. Present active verb. Here's what that means. It means that Jacob was proclaiming the fact that God continues to show up in his life. God continued, whenever Jacob was in distress, to prove himself. Jacob just wanted the other people to know, right? Well, guess what? At this very moment, Jacob was in distress. Now think back to our sandwich. Uh, What was happening at this moment, at this very moment, Jacob was afraid that the armies from the cities surrounding Shechem were going to band together and wipe him out completely. He was freaking out. Put yourself in those shoes. He was afraid that his life was about to end. You ever been there? But what did he do? He continued to trust God, that God would take care of him. And then he led others to see that also. That's a life of worship. A second clue is the phrase, and has been with me wherever I've gone. 
Well, what does this tell us about God? Uh, Again, remember the sandwich. If you uh, check back all the way to chapter 28, uh, verse 15, uh, God says to Jacob, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Sounds familiar. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. All right. Well, then in chapter 31... Jacob finds out that Laban's sons have accused him of theft. And what, what does the Lord say to Jacob? He says to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Another promise that he keeps. Cool, right? So if you imagine the ups and downs of Jacob's life and you put yourself in his shoes, that the things that he endured over the 20 plus years that went by between chapter 28 and chapter 35, his life wasn't easy. It wasn't easy by any means, but there was a common thread that went through the entire thing. And that was the fact that God was faithful, right? Pretty cool. God kept his promise. Jacob just wanted everyone to know. Well, God makes the same promise to you and me. It's in the scripture. Look, Joshua 1.5 says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. That's a good promise. Well, it's echoed again in Hebrews 13.5 when the writer of Hebrews says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Pretty cool, right? So the question is, for living a life of worship, is where has God proven himself in your life? Well, start with the fact that he sent Jesus to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. The moment you accepted that truth, uh, that reality, uh, that Jesus who lived a perfect life uh, and died a death that he didn't deserve, that in fact we deserved, so that he could give us life that we didn't deserve, when you accept that fact, when you, when you realize that reality in your heart, you begin a relationship with God that leads to him being faithful to you and keeping his promises. So think about your life. Think about the circles of friends and your families, your spheres of influence. How often... Do you gloss over opportunities to talk about God's faithfulness? Now, I'll confess to you guys, this is, out of everything we're going to talk about today, this is the hardest struggle for me. This is the biggest one. Because while, you know, you and I could go out to coffee this week, and I could just talk all about God's faithfulness, um, because, probably because of who I am and my um, position at the church, it'd be really easy, you know, to talk about God's faithfulness to you. But if you guys could look through maybe like a one-way mirror or something, uh, in my life, when I'm, say, at home with my family over the holidays, then you'd see something pretty different, unfortunately. You'd see a Jeffrey who spends a ton more time watching TV and talking about sports than talking about how God has been faithful in his life. And I'm just trying to be honest with you, that's the thing I struggle with, because there's people in my family that don't follow God, and so it's hard for me uh, to have a conversation with them about God's faithfulness. It just is. I, you know, I don't know what I'm afraid of there, Maybe rejection, I'm not sure, uh, but, but that's just one of the things that I struggle with. Lord willing, that's not going to be a struggle for the rest of my life. Lord willing, he's going to help me have courage and move out of that. But I'm just trying to be honest with you. It's hard for me to talk about God's faithfulness in those moments. Where is it hard for you? What are the circles where you have trouble talking about God's faithfulness? Just think about that for yourself. Because a life of worship means taking advantage of those spheres of, spheres of influence. A life of worship uh, is, is not being afraid to talk about how God has proven himself to us. So don't hold back. And that's to me too. Don't hold back from, from talking about God's faithfulness every day. That is a life of worship, proclaiming God's faithfulness. 
Lesson number three from this passage. A life of worship invites God's protection. A life of worship invites God's protection. Let's read verse number five, chapter 35. It says, As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Can I just say that I'm glad that I was not one of those cities that had a terror from God fall upon me? That sounds pretty intense, right? I'm glad that that's not me. Let's just say that. But remember the sandwich, because what's happening here? Well, chapter 34, verse 30 says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. That's pretty graphic. Uh, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So the reality is that Jacob faced some serious anxiety. I mean, I'd be willing to bet that when they packed up and left Shechem, that as they went down that road, Jacob's eyes were like peeled. Like he's, he's looking beside, you know, the other side, and he's looking behind, and he's probably got people watching out on all sides because he's expecting to be ambushed at any moment because he knows that these guys are going to hear about what his two sons did at Shechem, and they're going to raise up together and try to attack Jacob. So he's scared. Man, talk about anxiety. Talk about fear. Again, Jacob's life is right before his eyes. Now, the truth is, the the fact is about Jacob, and I think this is really where we can hone in on this as to what it means to live a life of worship, is that he didn't run away. He didn't hide. He didn't cower. He moved forward in faith. He moved forward in obedience uh, to God, which to me is a good indicator that he trusted God to protect him, that his life of worship invited God's protection. So, I mean, you may not be afraid of being ambushed by a bunch of people who want to kill you, uh, hopefully, uh, but there's certainly things that we face every day that cause us similar anxiety. You might be worried about losing your job. Uh, you might be uh, wondering how you're going to pay the bill that just came in that you didn't expect. You might be uh, scared about the decision your, your kids are making or going to make in the future. Uh, you might, might just be feeling alone. You might just be feeling unsure about yourself. These things cause anxiety in our lives, and we all experience this stuff. We've all felt that anxiety, but hey, learn from the life of Jacob. God has always got your back. God is faithful every time, all the ups and downs. He's always faithful. You know, even at the time of Jesus, after the time of Jesus, excuse me, the church uh, at a place called Philippi, you've heard of the book of Philippians uh, in the New Testament, they struggled with the same thing. You and I struggle with it. They struggled with it. Jacob struggled with it. This is an eternal, ongoing kind of thing, right? Until God comes back to earth and makes, it, makes all things new, we're always going to struggle with anxiety and fear. Uh, and here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to encourage the Philippians, the Christians there at Philippi. In verse, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 of Philippians, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. I'll say it again. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or, in other words, when anxiety comes, make room in your heart for worship. And here's the promise. That the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
And a life of worship invites God's protection, and God knows we need it, right? So in times of fear, in times of stress, when anxiety comes, and it will, don't let it cheapen your worship. Keep your heart focused on God through prayer. Ask God to provide. Be thankful for what he's already given you. Man, he will provide. He'll provide peace. He'll provide protection. He'll provide provision in every circumstance, whatever you're going through. A life of worship is inviting God's protection. And lastly, lesson number four, a life of worship moves you forward in God's bigger vision for your life. That, that's a tricky one. I'll say it again. A life of worship moves you forward in God's bigger vision for your life. Let's uh, read verses 9 through 13, which is after Jacob has constructed the altar at Bethel. And uh, it says here, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Pad and Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, excuse me, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then, Jake, then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. You see, when Jacob followed through, constructed the altar, put that spiritual marker in his life of worship, that outward expression of what was going on in his heart, God followed up by giving him a glimpse into the bigger picture. And if you pay attention to our sandwich, we keep going back to the sandwich, chapters 28 through 35, you'll notice and you'll probably recognize some of the things that God says here to Jacob because the promise God gives here echoes the promise that we talked about in chapter 28. Provision, God's presence, and offspring. The same one that he gave to to Jacob's father Isaac and to Jacob's grandfather Abraham. So, you know, you, you've got this sense of God is, is speaking to Jacob, uh, giving him this promise. And what I really, well, the way I read this is that God is saying to Jacob, hey, man, the same plan, the same promise that I had for you over 20 years ago is still in effect. We're still on that track. I'm still faithful to you. I'm still leading you in the same direction. Nothing has changed about who I am or where I'm taking you, right? Trust me. That's what he's saying to Jacob. Trust me, man. I got this, Right? Well, God blessed him there. Jacob didn't know the full extent of the blessing. He didn't realize that in the moment that he was fulfilling a crucial role in God's plan for salvation of all mankind. He didn't. He couldn't see past that. That's okay. He couldn't see that his youngest son, Joseph, you remember the sandwich back in chapter uh, 30 that he starts having kids and the very last child that he has is Joseph. His youngest son, Joseph, Jacob couldn't see that Joseph eventually would help the Israelites survive famine by inviting them to come to Egypt where there was food and shelter and provision. He couldn't see that uh, after Joseph died that the Israelites would end up becoming slaves in Egypt. He couldn't see that. Or or that a man named Moses would be born and grow up in Pharaoh's house and eventually lead the Israelites out from slavery. 
They couldn't see that uh, Moses would be succeeded by a man named Joshua who would lead the Israelites across the Jordan River into the land that God had promised to Jacob or that the Israelites encountered enemies uh, and as they did that, that God would raise up these judges that would help them in their war efforts or that eventually the people would grow tired of the judges and they would call out to God for a king because they wanted to be like the other nations and they said, God, give us a king. That's what we need. And he couldn't see that the second king that God anointed uh, to be the king over Israel would be one that came from his own lineage, a direct descendant of Jacob, a man named David. And then he couldn't see that from David's own lineage would come a man named Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jacob couldn't see that. But you know what he did? He lived a life of worship. And every step that he took was a step forward in God's bigger vision for his life. He didn't have to see it all. God had it under control. God knew what the plan was. The truth is that God has a plan for your life and for my life. He does. It's bigger than we can see. It's more complicated than you can ever imagine. And it's always for our good and for God's glory. Always. Let me ask you this question. When you think about the fact that God has a plan for your life, to what extent do you believe that? Do you believe that that when you die, that God's plan for you is over, that that's the end for you? Do you believe that your life is just limited to your finite self? Or do you live with the understanding that God's plan for you is so much bigger than just for your life? Do you believe that what happens to you today, that the choices you make today has the potential to impact generations to come? It does. You guys remember last week, and Doug talked about Joshua chapter 4, and we've referred to this a couple of times, but how, how God led uh, Joshua when they crossed the Jordan and when God parted the rivers of the Jordan so that they could cross into the, the promised land. He said, Joshua, take 12 guys and get each one of those guys to pick up a stone and, and take those stones and make an altar there so that you can remember what I did uh, when you crossed the Jordan. No, that's, that's, that's not how it went, is it? It says, make an altar there so that generation after generation after generation can know what I did when I parted the water and you led the people across dry land into the promised land that I promised to Jacob, to Isaac, and Abraham. Your life is, the plan that God has for you is bigger than you can see. It is. So when we choose to get rid of the stuff in our hearts that cheapens our worship, when we begin to talk more about God's faithfulness, when we have the guts to trust that God's going to protect us, then we'll be giving God more of what he desires and deserves. And we become part of something that's so much bigger than ourselves, so much bigger. Do you want, do you want your life to be a life of worship? Do you want your life to have eternal impact? Generations and generations until the end of time. Until God comes back and makes all things new. Do you want your life to have that kind of impact? For your good, for God's glory? Well, the first step is to know God personally. To know God personally. I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm not talking about religious rituals. I'm not talking about growing up a family who's Christian. I'm not talking about living a good life. I'm talking about making the hardest decision that you've ever made, to say in your own heart that I am not the God of my own life. 
but giving that control up to the one true God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. The God who sent his own son to die on the cross for your sins as a sacrifice. The, the God who desires and deserves a whole heart of worship from us. Is that you? Do you want your life to have that kind of impact? To follow that God? To say that God is not, uh, to, that you are not the, only, the God of your life, but the one true God is? The first step is knowing God personally. And in your own heart, if you've never trusted that Jesus' death and resurrection paid the price for your sin, if you never truly made Jesus the king of your life, today's the day. Today's the day. Every moment, just like Jacob, every moment, every ingredient was intentional in the sandwich. Every moment in your life has led you to this point. And God is calling. God is calling for you to have a real and personal faith experience with him, one that changes you for eternity. God is calling. He's calling for you to live his eternal plan, not for yourself, because you can live for yourself. That's only going to last as long as you do. Or you can live for God, and you can get in the flow of what his plan is for all eternity. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer that you can pray silently uh, in your heart to God if you choose. Um, this prayer is not the end. It's not the answer. Uh, you know, uh, it, it is the answer. The commitment is the answer. It's the beginning of committing your life to Christ. It's the beginning of new life. It's making that choice that, God, that you're not the God of your own life, but you want the one true God to be the God of your own life. And you don't have to say exactly what I say, but... If you're not sure what to say to God, then maybe this can be a guide to you. So let's just close our eyes and, and bow our heads and shut out some of the distractions that are going on around us. And uh, you can pray silently along with me something like this. God, I know that my life will never measure up to your standards. I can never be perfect. I'm not the God of my own life. But I believe that that's the reason you sent Jesus to die on the cross. You, you sent him to die for my sin so that I could know you in a real way and have eternal life in heaven with you. God, I'm making Jesus my king. I want to follow him with my life. I'm committed to you 100%. Amen. If, if you prayed that, prayed that prayer in your heart today, then, man, it's the beginning of a new life. It's the beginning of overflowing joy of satisfaction that lasts eternally. Something that you can never do for yourself. But I want to tell you, you know, church is not the only place that you can do something like that. You can do that in your own heart anytime. Man. If you're laying in bed tonight and you're just thinking, man, I'm, that kind of messed up my thinking on God or, uh, you know, what I thought was true may not be true or that kind of thing. Man, you can pray to God right there in your bed while you're laying awake at night and say, God, I want you to be the king of my life. I don't want to be. And you can accept the fact right there in your own house that Jesus paid the price for your sins. That's cool. It doesn't have to be a church. That's the first step is to know God personally. And if that's you, if you made that decision today or if you make that decision soon on your own, uh, we want to help you in that process because like I said, that's the first step. But Jesus says there's a second step. And the second step is uh, baptism. And uh, what Jesus says about baptism is that it's an act of obedience uh, to God, and it's a representation, it's a, it's 
basically a symbol of what God has done in your life for all to know, for all to see. It's proclamation. It's letting your life proclaim God's faithfulness. That's what it is. And and next week, there's going to be a cool opportunity because we're doing our monthly baptism service. And, uh, man, how cool would it be for one Sunday to give your life to Christ and the next Sunday to take the next step and follow him in believer's baptism? That'd be awesome. That'd be really cool. Well, let me just encourage you. If that's you, if you're thinking, I don't know what it means to give my life to Christ, or I don't know what it means to be baptized and what all that entails, do me a favor. Take the the tan card that's in your uh, chair and just mark on there, you know, maybe that you have questions about what it means to become a Christian. Or take one of these baptism cards that are on the counter over here and just put your name and info on there and give us an opportunity to help you answer some of those questions. Because, man, I believe that you're at the brink of experiencing the fullness of God's joy when you give your life to Christ and when you follow him in steps of obedience in your life. You can fully experience his life of worship. You can. God is faithful and he's good and he loves you.